Hello, welcome to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. Hello, we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. This time, as Europe prepares to launch its JUICE mission to Jupiter, we chat to one of the key scientists, catch up on launch preparations and discuss the mission's name again. (laughs) And I'm sure it won't be the last time. I can't discuss it too many times. Plus the forgotten space shuttle. We take a close-up and personal tour of Space Shuttle Enterprise at the intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York. Right now we're underneath the left wing, right at the leading edge, right next to the landing gear door. And this is, I always like showing people this, and you were asking about, you know, the tiles didn't look real. And now looking at this door, uh, you can see what a real tile looks like as opposed to the artificial tiles. That uh, and they've all got them. numbers on them. Yeah, they're all individual. So that <laughs> wow. tile does not go there. That tile is only for that spot. It's really good. Um, we'll I, also uh, discuss the, the role in investigating the uh, Columbia disaster, which I didn't know about, and the idea of a military space shuttle, which was realised in the For All Mankind TV series on Apple TV. And we we should say there's a slight difference in your voice between that uh, teaser and uh, your voice now. Now you sound like you're going to do some very cheesy voiceover from the 1970s. Or my own uh, OnlyFans channel. Oh, no, please don't. (laughs) I was thinking more of some aftershave, like, you know, shuttle for men. Shuttle Enterprise. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We could do movie trailers. So you're saying I should stick with this voice? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, anyway, right now at the European spaceport at Kourou in French Guiana, one of the last ever Ariane 5 rockets is being prepared for launch. In April, it will send ESA's JUICE spacecraft on its way to Jupiter. JUICE stands for, well, sort of, uh, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And the spacecraft will make detailed observations of three of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede, Callisto and Europa, and it will investigate the conditions for life. Well, the UK's contribution is supported by the UK Space Agency and includes a magnetometer to build up a picture of the magnetic field. Built at Imperial College London, it's led by Michelle Doherty, and a similar instrument she led on the Cassini spacecraft helped reveal the plumes of water coming from Enceladus. Michelle is one of the leading scientists on the mission, and in our conversation we discuss discuss the name, the challenge of the mission, and the search for life. I asked her first, though, what this region around Jupiter is like. So the icy moons of Jupiter are in a rather scary environment, at least Europa is. It's quite close to Jupiter, and the energetic particles, the radiation environment, is quite tough. And so you wouldn't want to spend too much time there without putting radiation hardening on the instrument. And then Ganymede and Callisto are further away. But, but, but they're in an environment where the background magnetic field of Jupiter is changing all the time. And we're going to use that. Because if you have a conducting liquid placed in a magnetic field that's changing, that changing magnetic field causes an electrical current to flow in that conducting liquid. That electrical current generates a magnetic field. And by measuring that 
you can work out properties of the liquid ocean. So you're using that. So you're the key instrument. Well, you would say this, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're the key instrument on this to be able to detect water from. And presumably, these are tiny changes you're looking at with this liquid. Usually, I mean, it's under ice, isn't it, it on is. these moons? It is. Yes. So I really like you. I think I'm the key <laughs> instrument as well. No, but seriously. I think one of the things I'm most proud of in the last maybe 20 years or so is the fact that magnetometer instruments are now seen as not only measuring the magnetic field outside of a body, because that's what we do, but by doing that, it allows us to see what's going on inside the body. So, you know, we've always known that as far as if you measure a magnetic field of a planet outside, you can get an understanding about what the dynamo process is going on inside. But it was the Galileo observations of Jupiter's moons and it was the Enceladus water vapor discovery from Cassini that really highlighted the fact that you can use magnetic field measurements to get an understanding of liquid water oceans under the surface. And that's mind-boggling. But the signals that we're looking for are really small. And if I lose sleep about juice... That's what I lose sleep about, is that we're going to be able to separate all the different magnetic fields that are there. So it's quite sort of complex. There's the magnetic field of Jupiter, which is changing all the time. You've got lots of plasma currents flowing, and they generate a field. You have the dynamo field of Ganymede. It's the only moon in the solar system that has its own internal dynamo. And then on top of all of that, you've got these induction signatures that you're trying to measure, and they're small. And the way I like to describe it and the reason I lose sleep over it, it's like looking for needles in a haystack and the needles are changing shape and colour all the time. And that's what we're trying to measure. And the instrument we've built is the best one we've built so far. And it can do it, but it's going to be difficult. Let, we'll come on to that in a second. I just want to pick up on, you talked about Enceladus. Just tell us about that. So you didn't know. So Enceladus, we now know, has these plumes of water yes. coming out. It was yeah. your instrument that detected that or, or gave a hint that that yes. might, might be happening. I mean, you, so you weren't expecting it. You, you didn't know that it could do that. We always thought Enceladus was different. And there were very early observations of Enceladus that, from the ground even, even before we sent spacecraft missions to Saturn, that seemed to imply that there was something different about the region around Enceladus. So we had an early flyby. So we, we Cassini reached uh, the Saturn system in mid-2004. We had an early flyby of Enceladus, I think it was February 2005, and we were quite far away. And we didn't look at the data straight away because we weren't expecting to see anything great. But when we looked at the data, there was a strange signal that we saw in the data. And to begin with, I thought maybe we hadn't calibrated the instrument properly. Maybe the details of the spacecraft trajectory were not of high enough resolution yet that, that we were seeing something because of that. And so we actually we looked closely at the data and we began to think about what those observations might be telling us. We didn't tell anyone yet. And then a month later, we had a second flyby, and we saw a very similar signal. And the way that we could describe it to ourselves as a team was that Enceladus was covered with a diffuse atmosphere. The entire surface was covered. And what was happening was the upper regions of the atmosphere were become ionized by solar radiation, just like they do on the Earth. 
And that would then stop the magnetic field of the solar wind penetrating down onto the surface of the Earth. And we thought maybe this was happening at Enceladus. So I remember I went out to the Jet Propulsion Lab and I gave a presentation. And I said, we're not sure, but we think we're seeing an atmosphere at Enceladus. Can we go really close on the next flyby? And it took a lot of discussion. Not everyone thought it was a good idea. But in the end, it was agreed that they would ch- that JPL would change the flyby altitude. So it was changed from, I think, about 1,000 kilometers down to 173 kilometers. And to be frank, I didn't sleep for a couple of nights before that flyby because if we had seen nothing, no one would ever have believed anything I said again. But what we found, it wasn't an atmosphere. It was a plume of water vapor outgassing from the South Pole. And because we went so close, all the other instruments took fantastic data. We saw a heat source right where the water vapor was coming out. We saw on subsequent flybys organic material on the surface and in the plume. And so that's where the focus moved to Enceladus as a place for potential habitability. And we had lots more Cassini flybys after that. And now similar but better technology at Jupiter. So is that, is that what you're looking to, again, you're not expecting plumes, you're expecting water, un- you know, do we know there's water under the ice on these icy moons? We're almost certain there is at Europa. For Ganymede, I think there is, but we need to confirm it because the Galileo magnetometer observations could be described by a particular kind of dynamo field or they could be described by a dynamo field and an induction field. And the Galileo magnetometer team thought it pointed to an induction field as well as a dynamo field. So we're almost sure it's there, but we need to confirm it. And so that will be the first thing we do. We're working at the moment on on making sure that that first Ganymede flyby will essentially allow us to confirm the existence of the ocean. It's not going to get there for a while. We can come on to how long that's going to be. But it, ultimately, it will go into orbit around Ganymede. Right. So you've got a lot of... T- you have time then and um, continuous... A chance for continuous and repeat observations, yes. presumably. Yes. So, yes, I mean, you know, it's going to take a long time for us to get there. But once we're there, we're going to go into orbit around Jupiter. We're going to have numerous Ganymede flybys. And we're essentially using Ganymede to change the trajectory of the spacecraft. We will learn a lot on those Ganymede flybys. But then at the end of the mission, we will go into a circular orbit around Ganymede. The plan at this stage is to have a 500-kilometer circular orbit. Assuming, and fingers crossed, we get launched at the beginning of our JUICE launch window, we will then reach Jupiter with enough fuel to take us down to a 200-kilometer circular orbit. And that is critical because these induction signatures are so small that the closer you get to them, the bigger they are. And so that's the ideal, is that we would end the mission with a 200-kilometer circular orbit. And, and, and one of the things that I need to make sure that we do is we temper people's expectations. Because when we first arrive at Jupiter and have Ganymede flybys, we're not going to resolve the ocean characteristics. We're only going to be able to do that right at the end of the mission. And that's hard to have enough patience to do that. But we really need to remind ourselves of that all the time. 
And I should I mean, mention, I mean, we're not looking, assuming it launches in April, as it's, as it's scheduled to do, yes. you're not looking until 2031 to actually reach the, the Jupiter system to start the mission proper? That's right, yes. So one of the things about outer planetary missions is you need a lot of patience. And it's quite weird that I'm involved in them because I'm not renowned for my patience. But yes, so we, all being well, we'll launch 13th of April. Uh, we have numerous flybys of the Earth. Uh, there's a moon-Earth flyby as well, and we'll use those planetary flybys to, to help kick us out to Jupiter. I think we get there in the middle of 2031, and then we have at least three years in orbit. But we will spend that time it takes us to get there getting ready. We've already I'm, – I'm building up my team, postdocs and PhD students. I've got co-eyes around the world that are doing the same thing. We need to look at the data that we have. We need to put software and modelling together. So we're ready to hit the ground running when we get there. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but this will be the first time anyone's orbited another moon apart from the moon. Is that, is that right? That's correct. This is the first orbiter of a planetary moon and – it's really exciting. You know, who would have thought that back in 2007 when, with a few colleagues, we started talking about, yeah, let's persuade ESA to build a mission to go to Jupiter, and, and now we're, we've got this mission about to be launched. Now, we should talk about the, the purposes of the mission and this link between water and life, because, I mean, obviously water, exciting, because there could be life, but it doesn't mean there is life, does it? No. So uh, from my perspective, one of the most important realizations we've come to in the last 30 years is the search for liquid water is not necessarily focused at planets close to the sun. It was from Galileo observations and then the Cassini observations, which have confirmed to us that you can find liquid water far away from the sun, but also in other solar systems far away from a sort of parent star. You can find liquid water, but it's not on the surface. It's underneath the surface. And, you know, this drive to search for liquid water comes from the fact that our understanding of how life formed on Earth is you need liquid water, you need a heat source, you need organic material. And if you have those three things, then you also need them to be stable enough over a long enough period of time that something happens and life will begin to form. So I'm always very careful, you know, journalists try and tease out the word life from me. I prefer to describe it as potential habitability. What JUICE is going to do is it's going to allow us to decide whether the conditions are right for potential habitability to form. You know, I mentioned the word life, so you've got it out of me already, but it's just, it's the first step of the process. You know, people have said to me in the past, why don't we just go to Europa and go underneath the surface? And my question to them is, where on the surface? Where's the ice crust thinnest so that we can get under the surface? So this is, this is one of the steps that we need to take before we then try and get under the surface the next time around. Uh, and that comes back to your point about patience, really, because this is a multi-stage, multi-decade process, isn't it? So yes. if you find, let's talk about Ganymede, if you find liquid water yes. under the ice and it, it looks like so you're going to want to send something back, but you've got to start planning that. So that's not going to happen for another 20 years or so, is it? Absolutely. And it's having the patience to know that you shouldn't try and run before you can walk. And so it's understanding an environment and then deciding what the next steps are. Yeah. 
Uh, this isn't the only mission heading that way. You've got the Europa Clipper specifically, well, in, it's in the name, going yes. to Europa. Yes. Presumably you're, you're working together because it's this sudden, well, renewed interest, I suppose, not sudden, renewed interest in, in the Jupiter system. Yes, yes. So um, um, that's correct, but in fact it, it's, it's useful to to remember back to when we first started thinking about this to, because to begin with it was a joint discussion between European and US scientists and the original mission was going to be a joint mission. NASA was going to build a Europa orbiter and ESA was going to build a Ganymede orbiter and we were going to go together. And then Europa is difficult to visit because of the high radiation environment and the cost of having an orbiter there is huge. And so NASA said they couldn't afford to do it. And so the ESA then said to the science definition team, what we want you to do is study an ESA-only mission. And that's when we focused on the Ganymede orbiter. They also asked us to change the name, but I can come back to that. But once JUICE was selected and we started building... U.S. scientists had kept the pressure up on NASA and said, we really want to go back to Europa. And that's when Europa Clipper, which is a flyby spacecraft, so it's going to have, I think, 50 flybys of Europa, which is easier on the radiation environment as far as the instruments are concerned. And so my understanding is we will be there together. I don't know the details of it, but I think we'll overlap for at least two or three years. Clipper will get there before us because they're being launched on, on SLS, which will get them out there much more quickly. But there are there, there was already a, a group of scientists, US and European scientists, who are sitting down together and talking and saying, OK, we're going to be there at the same time. What kind of observations do we, do we actually want to make? Because if you're in an environment that you don't know very well, if you've got two-point measurements, you can separate temporal and spatial features, and that's really important. I'm just going to pick you up on the name because you mentioned it. I know, I know, I, I know. asked for it. Yeah, Juice, yeah. I mean, it's not great, is it? Well, yeah, Juice is not a great name. ESA Project people actually laughed at us when we said to them, oh, okay, why don't you call it Juice? So let me take a step back. So originally it, was, it, it wasn't a great acronym anyway. It was the Europa-Jupiter system mission. That was the joint spacecraft. And then when NASA said they wouldn't be able to do it, ESA turned to us on the science definition team and said, you have three months to study an ESA-only mission, and oh, by the way, you need to change the name. You know, we had so much work to do, we didn't have the time to put into coming up with, or the detailed time to put into coming up with a new name. So what we did after a long day of work is we went to the pub. And I said, come on, we've got to come up with some ideas for names. So I think we came up with four or five names. One of them had been used before. It wasn't a mission that had flown, but we weren't allowed to use that. There was another name, and Emma Bunce will kill me for mentioning this, but Emma suggested Meow, Moon Explorer of Ocean Worlds, which I thought was quite cute, but we didn't think we'd be taken seriously, so we decided not to go with that. And so... We decided we needed to have Jupiter in the name. So what we came up with eventually was Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. And if you concentrate really hard, you can work out where juice comes from. But I've got to write it down on occasion to see it. So when, so when we gave this list of names to ESA, they picked juice and they said, oh, we're not sure it's going to take off. Maybe we'll change the name after the mission's been adopted. We're about to launch, and we've still got the name. And I asked someone at ESA the other day, and they said, no, we like the name, we're going to keep it. So I think we're stuck with Jews. Well, we can, I think we can, we can live with it. And let's come back to the magnetometer then. Simply, how does it work? You've got this, this boom 
I mean, is, is this simple just electromagnetism, as we would understand from playing yes. with magnets at school? Is, yes. is that really how it works? So talk us through what it's sort of seeing if, if you start to, if you can visualise that. Okay. So um, for a magnetometer instrument, we need to be as far away from the spacecraft as possible because we want to make sure the magnetic field we measure is due to the environment and not due to the spacecraft. So what we do is we persuade the project to put us on a long boom. So for JUICE, we have a 10.6-metre boom. We've got three different instruments. So the the instruments at the end of the boom? The instruments are, are, are spread out along the boom. We've got two hardware co-eyes. One is based in Germany, and they've built one of the Fluxgate magnetometer instruments, and that's going to be halfway down the boom. The Fluxgate instrument we built at Imperial is almost at the end of the boom. And then there's a new instrument flying, which is a scalar instrument, and that measures only the magnitude of the magnetic field, and that was built by colleagues in Austria, and that's right on the end of the boom. And the reason we need that scalar instrument is that one of the things about a magnetometer instrument is that you need to know what the zero level of the instrument is. And it can sometimes change. It can change with distance from the sun. It can change with thermal conditions around the planet that you're flying. And so you need to check what the zero level is or what the offset of the instrument is. So when you say the zero level, is that like resetting um, scales or something to to zero? Is that... Um, what, how do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is if if I'm measuring 0.2 nanotesla, is it really 0.2 or is it 0.1? And so it's whether the zero line is where it should be in a sense. And the way that you can check that is ordinarily we would ask to roll the spacecraft. And if you roll it in a quiet field, you can you can tell if the zero line is where it should be. At Ganymede which is our most important observation, the magnetic field is changing so quickly that rolling the spacecraft doesn't help. And so that's why we persuaded ESA we needed the scalar instrument that would allow us to do it. And so we've got these three instruments. They will be working together, and they will be measuring the field. And let let me take a step back, sorry. The reason that they're not all right at the end of the boom is we also use that instrument at the middle of the boom to help us measure the spacecraft field. And so if there is a magnetic field of the spacecraft, it will be different halfway down the boom as it will right at the end of the boom. And so we use that separation to allow us to work out if we have to subtract anything from the magnetic field. The thing about JUICE, it's the most electromagnetically clean spacecraft I've ever seen. They've done a fantastic job. And that's one of the reasons why I'm confident, although nervous, about the fact that we're going to be able to measure these induction signals. And you've got to keep it magnetically clean while you're going to stick it on a rocket and blast it into into space. So presumably there's quite a lot of procedures, a lot of safety things. I mean, I've seen, I remember going to the clean room to see uh, Swarm, which are the satellites that are measuring the Earth's magnetic field uh, and the mag- studying the magnetosphere around Earth and all the things I had to remove, you know, removing watches, removing shoes, belts, just making sure I was not magnetic or not going to mess around with these these beautiful spacecraft in the clean room. Presumably you've had to take precautions as well with JUICE. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, one of the really important things we did on JUICE is when we were first selected to build the instrument, the first request we had to ESA was that they form an electromagnetic cleanliness working group. And so right from the start, 
all of the instruments were involved. Everyone talked about the parts they were going to use. If they were magnetic parts, we then explained to them the impact it would have on us. And so there was this ongoing conversation all the way through the build. And so that working group did spectacularly well because we're hoping not to see any instruments doing anything right at the end of the boom. But, the, but you're right. The other thing we need to be careful of is, you know, you think, okay, let's, let's, let's put our instrument on the boom, but we need to make sure the tools that are used are non-magnetic. You've got to be really careful if you go too close to the spacecraft and you've got a watch that's generating a magnetic field. So there's all these things you have to think about all the time. You know, you don't want to be spending three and a half million pounds building a spectacular instrument and then someone goes and stands next to it with a watch. You know. So it's lots of pressure because you've got to be worrying all the time about it. Huh? Um, coming back to the, the science, we've talked about life, we've talked about habit- habitability. Yeah, you see, I'm training yeah. you. <laughs> habitability. <laughs> um, presumably as well, study, we're, we're finding more and more gas giants as exoplanets and almost every time there's an exoplanet discovered it turns out to be another gas giant presumably by studying jupiter and this jupiter system with these moons that we've seen back since galileo now that we can start to maybe piece together what these exoplanet systems might be like absolutely and that's a really good point that you that you brought up and as one of the cases that we made to ESA when we first proposed is that by studying Ganymede we're studying a whole new class of planetary bodies which are known as water worlds and we think a lot of either the planets or the moons around exoplanets could potentially be of water world type and so by by studying Ganymede we can then get an understanding about this whole new potential class of body so it's really important by, you know, using what we have in the solar system to be able to understand what else is going on outside the solar system. Now, we are speaking, what, about six weeks before the launch. Is it, I mean, what's it like? You're in London, the satellite is in French Guiana. Uh, it's going to be integrated into the, the top of the Ariane 5 one of the last launches of an Ariane 5, which is quite exciting in itself. Does everyone get nervous about these things? I'm extremely nervous, but also extremely excited as well. And so I have a confession to make that uh, on the day that we were told that Juice was going to be flown to French Guyana, I, I, I looked, you know, you can, you can do a search to see if, if any Antonov aeroplanes are in the air. And there wasn't. And I thought, ooh wonder what's going on and then the following day I did the same thing and there was an Antonov that had flown from Toulouse and was on its way to French Guyana so like a geek I watched its progress landed safely and then we got a an email from the project manager to say Juice was there and it's now being prepared to be put onto the spacecraft I mean onto the onto the launcher and in some ways, you know, it's out of my hands now. I will see it again before it goes because I will go out for launch. But there's this, this trepidation but this excitement as well. And, and, and in fact, it reminds me, my instrument manager and I went out to Toulouse in December. There was a PI day and we got to go in and see the spacecraft. And it was rather emotional. I still have to pinch myself that I'm doing the kind of stuff I do. Because when I was a young girl in South Africa, 
My dad was an engineer, and he always used to have little projects on the go. And one of his projects was he built his own telescope, and he ground the mirror of the telescope and everything. And my re- I remember my sister and I thought we did the most important bit. We helped mix the concrete for the base of the telescope. But my first view of Jupiter and its moons was through a telescope that my dad built. I never thought in those days that I'd end up doing what I'm doing. I saw Saturn and the rings of Saturn. So... I do have to pinch myself every once in a while that I do what I do. The excellent Michelle Doherty. I very much enjoyed our chat, as you can probably tell from listening to it. And she sounded, you know, that lovely mix. She's obviously passionate about what she does. Um, it reminded me a bit of um, the film Contact, actually, with the, the, the young girl who plays the astrophysicist based on Jill Tarter or uh, whatever, um, with Jodie Foster plays in the film, in that right from an early age, it was like she'd found her calling and it was involving her dad. And, it, oh, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's lovely to hear that that sort of ambition integrity, tenaciousness, intelligence, uh, all comes together into one obviously quite spectacular career. And I should say, her uh, I mean, she's one of the most senior scientists at Imperial, and she has, as a result, one of the best offices. Oh, yeah. I would say one of the best offices in West London. <laughs> From the outside, if you look at the building, it's one of the ugliest buildings in West London. So that area, you've got the Science Museum, Natural History Museum, Royal Albert Hall, mm-hmm. Albert Memorial. I mean, yes, you it's know, all Hyde lovely, Park, old London, isn't it? Stunning buildings. Dick stunning Van Dyke is, is, could be on the chimneys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, beautiful streets uh, or Victorian, Georgian streets, superb. And, and then plonked in the middle of this, these really ugly concrete buildings of Imperial <laughs> College. But she looks out on all this. So she's got this extraordinary view of West London. And from her office, you can see the London Eye. You can see right the way across to the city. I mean, absolutely spectacular corner office. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Oh, it sounds like office envy. What, oh, it was. What, I was we, just, we look I out over a tree. <laughs> we look out over a tree, a couple, couple of ducks, park benches and a little river. I mean, that's, well, that's pretty, Which sounds pretty quite good. nice, yeah, it doesn't is, it? It is quite nice. Because the, the yeah. trees hide a car park. Yeah. Don't they? No, it's nice. It's got a yeah. river. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not too bad. Not mm. too bad. Well, we've heard from Michelle about some of the potential of this mission to explore these extraordinary moons. And I've been chatting to Caroline Harper, who's the UK Space Agency's Head of Space Science. And before we get on to talking about the JUICE launch preparations, she told me about some of the other UK involvement in this mission. We've led in the UK on Michelle's instrument, the magnetometer, as you say, but we've also contributed to two other instruments on board, one of which is called the Particle Environment Package that is analysing plasmas, so the highly energetic particles in the environment around the spacecraft. For that one, Mullard Space Science Laboratory, which is part of University College London, provided the solid state detectors. And Aberystwyth University did some of the radiation hardness design for the particle environment package. And this is a a Swedish-led instrument. That's right. Yes, Mm. yes. It's led by Sweden. But like all of these missions, uh, there are numerous contributions from other countries on the different instruments. Um, And then uh, we've contributed to the Janus camera, which is led by Italy. And for this one, the Open University has characterised and tested and calibrated the imaging sensors for the camera. 
So these sensors have been specially designed in the UK at a a UK-based company, Teledyne E2V, to withstand the harsh radiation of the Jupiter system. So that was a real academic industry partnership on the Janus camera for the UK contribution. And for those, um, you know, university establishments and and companies involved, are they just sort of basically sitting nibbling their nails awaiting launch or um, is there still anything that they they can do between now and the launch because it's all being delivered and is waiting for its launch on an Ariane 5? Yes, that's right. Well, I I think we're all chewing our nails a bit (laughs) uh, and will be until soon after launch when we know whether the operations centre has acquired control of the, the spacecraft There have been some of the instrument teams out there in the last days running final cleanliness checks on their instruments, but but most of the work is done. The the spacecraft is now in full flight configuration, so all the instruments are are fully integrated uh, out in Karoo and and waiting for launch. There are a lot of other things going on, though, at the, the launch site. ESA and Airbus engineers have been conducting some final tests on the spacecraft. I think most recently there's been pressurization of the chemical propulsion thrusters and checking for leaks. And then there was a mission level test simulating the entry of the spacecraft into the Ganymede orbit to check that some software tweaks that had been implemented are actually working as expected. And while the engineers are checking the spacecraft, the launch vehicle has also begun integration. So last weekend, the primary stage and the two solid fuel boosters were put together. And then there have been countdown rehearsals, and that involves the ESA Mission Control Centre in Darmstadt, who will take control of the spacecraft from the launch site soon after launch, and also the tracking stations in Spain, Argentina and Australia. So there have been rehearsals for the countdown and, and what happens immediately after launch ongoing as well. So the next step will be moving the spacecraft to what's called the hazardous processes facility for fueling. Um, so we'll begin fueling the spacecraft on the 18th of March. It's it's it is very um, it is exciting because it's it's a very ambitious mission and it's going to take a long time to get there. It won't get there until 2031. But it's not as if the instruments are sort of inactive <laughs> during that entire journey because the science will begin approximately six months. That's right. In. Yeah. And will the any of the the UK science kick in at that six month period or or is that going to be sort of later? on in the journey? Well, I think all of the instruments will be fired up and starting to take measurements, uh, as you say, on on the approach to the Jupiter system. So I I think uh, everyone will be interested in how they perform and what data they collect. But there's also the fact that in order to get to Jupiter, as you said, it's a very long way away and the spacecraft can't carry enough fuel for a direct trip to Jupiter. It has to use gravity assist flybys around the Earth and, and Venus in order to sort of build up momentum and, and, and get up to speed and, and make it to Jupiter. And no doubt there will be some science to be done around uh, Venus, for example, as well. If if you're flying by, why wouldn't you try and take <laughs> Yes, yes it'd be a bit of a waste, wouldn't it? A wasted opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it tests your instruments as well. So it's, it's a win-win. Now, Michelle described it, you know, this moment uh, pre-launches, you know, mixture of excitement and trepidation. And obviously, it's a significant, not just uh, a sort of academic and intellectual investment from the UK uh, Space Agency, but also a financial one, uh, necessarily. 
how does the UK Space Agency sort of feel, you know, in in these moments towards it? Because you're in, you're involved and you're supporting, but at the same time, you're not in the way that Michelle is so invested in it from a a very personal point of view. Or am I sort of being unfair to people like yourself, Caroline? Are you as emotionally <laughs> invested in this? I'm, I'm not as emotionally invested as Michelle. I would never say that. I haven't lived and breathed the design and the build and the testing of the instrument in the way that she has. But we have worked closely together and, and I am personally invested and um, I, I'm very much looking forward to the successful launch of this mission. In terms of you asked how the, the space agency feels about it in relation to its its financial investment, we know that we've done everything we can and the team has done everything it can to de-risk to make sure that anything that might go wrong has been headed off at the pass. We put the whole instrument development through a series of very rigorous reviews and we pull in lots of external experts who understand about what the instruments are trying to do and where the pitfalls can be to make sure that Michelle will tell you all about the reviews that we've <laughs> insisted that she, she participates in to make sure that we de-risk this, to make sure that it really is as successful as it can be when it's launched. Now, this is going to be, you know, one of the final launches on an, an, an Ariane That's right, yeah. Five. Um, so, so where next for, for, for future um, launches with UK involvement? Because Ariane 6, I believe, is, is a little delayed. Yes, I mean, so Ariane 5 has been the, the workhorse for science missions and other missions for a, a, a long time now. Uh, we've launched missions like Rosetta and Bepi Colombo, and more recently, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched on an Ariane 5. So it's paid its way, but it's time to move on. And Ariane 6 is going to be designed to launch a wider range of satellites, including smaller ones, with the emphasis now on, on some of these constellations. So Ariane 5 is moving with the times. Yes, you're right. There's a bit of a delay and there's a bit of a queue. So the next launch that I'll be looking forward to after JUICE is a, another science mission through ESA called Euclid. And again, we've led one of the two science instruments on Euclid. And that one is due to launch in July. And there isn't an Ariane 6 available in the time frame. So ESA have done something rather different from their normal procedure and they have agreed in the, the very exceptional circumstances uh, because the delay is partly due to the, the current geopolitical situation and the, the Ukraine conflict. So rather exceptional circumstances and they've agreed that uh, we can launch Euclid on a, a Falcon 9 with SpaceX uh, in, in America. And normally ESA wouldn't do that. They would be launching from the European spaceport. But as I say, this is exceptional circumstances. It doesn't set a precedent for the future in any way. They'll be back to using Ariane 6 as soon as it's available. But for the time being, we're not asking Euclid to wait and maybe the sensitive instruments degrade and stop working as well as they might. And the, the specialist teams that have um, worked on Euclid might not be able to hang around indefinitely. So it's important that we launch on schedule. And for those reasons, ESA has take, thought very carefully about it and then decided to launch that one on, on an, an American launch vehicle. Fingers and everything else crossed um, for a successful <laughs> launch for, for Deuce. Yes. Caroline Harper from the UK Space Agency, thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Sue. Pleasure. And of course, we'll follow the progress of Juice. So expect a special edition of Space Boffins, maybe a juicy Space Boffins edition 
in 2031. Do you really think we'll be going in 2031? Yeah, we'll still be talking about well, the ducks been, out of the window. I was going to say, how many years has it been now? 12 years? Almost 12. 12, yeah. 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 2011. Um, so it's only eight years. Yeah, yeah. gosh. It's durable. <laughs> Definitely durable. Uh, this is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And still to come, surprising things we didn't know about the space shuttle. Do get in touch with any thoughts, ideas or comments on social media. Uh, we may even respond. Just think of it as winning the lottery. Approach you cleared to start to turn. Hey, Gardo's in the turn. It is really tight, uh, Bo. In fact, I think it's a little uh, better than the OSTA uh, field. Great. That's the crew of Space Shuttle Enterprise communicating with Mission Control during the spacecraft's first free flight in 1977. Enterprise was the first shuttle built, but although it was used to test out gliding and landing, it never actually made it into space. That's a a really good question. pub quiz show question, uh, that one. Well, today the shuttle is on display at the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York. It's housed in a special hangar on the Intrepid's flight deck where we met the museum's curator of aviation, Eric Bohm, to reveal some of its hidden history. Well, you're in our space shuttle pavilion and this is the home of the space shuttle Enterprise, the very first space shuttle, the prototype space shuttle. Is it really a space shuttle or is it an aircraft? (laughs) Well, good question. It's kind of both, isn't it? But it is a spacecraft, in my opinion, first and foremost, and uh, a glider on its way home, but a spacecraft first. So how was it built? What was it designed for? Well, you're looking at a time when uh, we were walking on the moon at the time when this was approved to be built, and uh, NASA had great ambition for doing more, especially in a low-Earth orbit. And they were looking for something reusable. Uh, That was one of the ways they sold it to the American public, I think, was the reusability. It would be cheaper than going to the moon. Maybe it didn't really turn out that way. But uh, the reusable fact of it, the looking forward, not just this little space capsule with three guys cramped in it, but something that bigger, something that take more people to space, something that can help build a space station, something that can bring up modules in a cargo bay. Uh, You can deliver satellites to space or you can do experiments in these modules. So it was a multi-use vehicle. So tell us how this differs from the sort of later shuttles because there are a couple of things I'm looking at now thinking I don't remember a shuttle having that bit but now I'm not (laughs) sure whether it's because I just haven't seen a, a shuttle in a long time whether my mind's playing tricks with me. Well, I think, uh, you know, size and and general appearance, it's identical. All the shuttles are identical. But uh, Enterprise was the prototype. It was designed to one day go in space, but it did not have the thermal protection that the shuttles that actually went in space would eventually have. But remember, Enterprise was first. The things they wanted to do with Enterprise before building the rest of them was to test that really critical thing, and that was the landing. You're coming in without power. Uh, So that was the ALT program, the Approach and Landing Test Program. So is it the underside that's that's different? You can see it looks tiled, but it looks more like bathroom tiles. (laughs) Well, yeah, what you're looking at there is more of uh, a foam. Uh, Now, they are the proper thickness, the actual thickness, and uh, it was applied uh, in big panels of this foam were were glued on. And then the tiles were kind of carved into the foam to give it that 
looks like it has all the tiles. Now, I've had uh, folks at NASA tell me, well, you know, there's a, a parasitic drag coefficient. They wanted it to be as accurate as possible. I don't know if all that's true. But it, all the foam tiles on this uh, do look like the real tiles. Now, if you saw, go see one of the space shuttles on display, either in Florida or uh, uh, out in California, and you will notice, or Discovery in Washington, D.C., of course, uh, you'll you'll notice the tiles. Every single individual tile is covered with a, a stencil numbering it, and because they're all individual, so you won't see that here. Now there are some actual tiles and thermal blankets on Enterprise that were used to test for different things. So I could show you those as well. But uh, yeah, this is not the real tile on these. Good. At least my I'm I'm not going crazy. Now I've got to sort of mention about um, before we go and look at the tiles, the the, the name itself because this. The, the first thing people think about with Enterprise is, well, for me, people anyway, <laughs> is USS Enterprise. And, the, and it is related to, to Star sure, Trek, I'm, isn't I'm it? I'm holding up my, uh, oh, my, my, the, uh, Vulcan, my, my Vulcan salute. Yeah. I'm holding that up for those who can't see. Uh, right, exactly. Right. This was going to be named the Constitution. And they were going to roll it out of the factory on Constitution Day uh, here in the States. It's just kind of a funny name. It sounds like a great name for a big old sailing ship with... with sails and masts and things like that but a horrible name for a spaceship I think in my opinion Constitution it just kind of doesn't fall off the tongue as something futuristic and so you had your your Star Trek folks there was a campaign so to speak they had a very successful campaign to bring the show back for a third season uh, and they had a campaign to rename the vehicle Enterprise so that's that's the basis of the name Enterprise in, in, I, can't, I was going to oh, say I was oh. gonna, they can't, I'm thinking they missed a trick because yes. this never was going to go into space yeah, was that, it that, well no no that's not thinking, true yeah. well, so at the planning stage and in the building stage it was going to go into space uh, eventually right. this this uh, fake tiles would have all been removed real tiles would have been applied the engines would have been installed you know all the things to go in space that it doesn't have were going to be applied to this but what they learned as they were building the shuttles they learned a little bit about construction, a little bit about alloys and things, and they improved. So each there were six shuttles built, and each one, in order, was lighter than the previous. And it's really important to keep space shuttles light because you can bring more stuff, and you can bring more stuff at a, uh, especially the inclination of orbit. Ever notice when shuttles launch out of Florida, you'll see them do that little roll maneuver. They're they're uh, getting into that position, that inclination off the uh, elliptical plane, so to speak, uh, to get to their destination, whether it's the ISS or the launch point for a probe or whatever. Enterprise was the heaviest, and it wasn't going to be able to bring as much cargo, and it probably would not make a useful vehicle to bring sections to the ISS construction. Uh, So it was considered at one point uh, to give it to the Department of Defense, the Air Force here, and let it only launch military cargo and they would do those launches on polar orbits from california because there was going to be a a military shuttle program right at vandenberg air force base and and enterprise actually visited vandenberg they brought it out after the alt program they went out and did a launch pad fit check at vandenberg so the shuttles were going to be launched from vandenberg northern california of course that never happened And uh, Enterprise never was transferred to the American Air Force. So it would have not been a good idea to modify it for space. They had some extra parts laying around, some test articles. And those test article pieces were finished off, and and that made Challenger. That's why if you look at the numeric system, 101, Enterprise, 102, 
Discovery, or Columbia, uh, notice that Challenger is 099. I was also going to ask about um, Enterprise, is how many air miles does it have? Obviously, it never got to go into space. So how many miles has it No, I've never, I've never figured out the air miles, but this is the only space shuttle that went to your country. I never knew that. What? Yes. So uh, back in, I think it was the early 80s, uh, they took it on a trip to Europe, went to Italy and England, and came back and stayed in Canada for a little while, on top of the 747, of course. But it went to the Paris Air Show. After that, it went to the World's Fair. They had a flight down to New Orleans and put it on a barge, and uh, it was at the, uh, the World's Fair in New Orleans for a little while. It did those uh, before that. When NASA still had good control over it, they did the fit check out of Vandenberg. They did vibration checks in Alabama at the Marshall Space Flight Center. They did the fit checks at Kennedy Space Center. So it's it's been around. Let's talk then about those test flights. I'm not sure that I would want to be in a in this on the top of a 747 and then without any engines and then just glide back to Earth or plummet to Earth, one of the two. <laughs> well, you, you, I mean, that takes quite something, doesn't well, it? Well, it's the engineering, right? You have to trust your engineers. And uh, I'm sure that I, I, we've, we've had Fred Hayes here. And Fred Hayes, of course, did the first and the last flights of, uh, of the ALT. And uh, Fred talked about it was just another job, just another airplane to him. And uh, they, they were able to simulate it using a, a modified Gulf Stream. They knew what they were doing. I, I don't think there was any doubt. In fact, the, the test program, the ALT test program, was supposed to be much more than just five flights. But it proved to be great. It was a wonderful flying machine. So they only needed the five flights to prove it out. I, I should add that this is why Richard is not a test pilot. But <laughs> 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 you know, because I, Now, you mentioned that we could see some real um, space tiles here. Yes. So shall we wander over yeah, and uh, find out where way. they are? Yeah, we're going to walk underneath the vehicle now, right under the belly here. We, can, uh, we have it up. Uh, you notice the landing gear extended and on jacks back here, so we can actually walk under uh, the vehicle. You're not able to do that at uh, Udvar Hazi. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're right now we're underneath the left wing, right at the leading edge, right next to the landing gear door. And this is, I always like showing people this. And you were asking about, you know, the tiles didn't look real. And now if looking at this door, uh, you can see what a real tile looks like as opposed to the artificial tiles. That uh, and they've all got numbers on them. Yeah, they're all individual. So <laughs> that wow. tile does not go there. That tile is only for that spot. And you notice there's a little hole in the center. That's where they were able to check moisture before launch. You don't want any moisture in there because that expands and would blow the tile apart. And, it, and it's very obvious now, as you say, which are the ones that are right. not uh, the real thing. But also because they look so pristine and uniform. Yeah. Whereas the other ones have all got different gradations of grey on them. But across the top there, you've got... As if something has streaked past it, and torn off the surface and gouged yeah. into, and we see the white beneath it of... Right, so these are very oh. fragile. In fact, if you don't see that right there? That's a dent from a visitor going, I wonder if it's real. Oh, no. Yeah, so they're very, they're, they're just, you know, that they're, they're very fragile silicon oh. things. So that big gouge you're talking about, that came from the Columbia investigation. Remember the Columbia loss, the uh, vehicle launched on, uh, on launch, there was a piece of foam that broke off from the external fuel tank. And in the video of the launch, you could see this chunk about the size of a briefcase go passing underneath the leading edge of the wing between the tank and the vehicle, and but it doesn't really reappear. What does reappear is some, some dust and small fragments, so it obviously hit and 
shattered, but did it do any damage? That was unknown. After they finished their mission, they're coming home and they're re-entering the atmosphere. They start above California, they streak across Texas and Louisiana, the Gulf of Mexico, and then into Florida. And the vehicle, of course, with this hole in the wing, broke apart and we lost the crew over Texas. So they had to try to figure out what went wrong. Can that piece of foam do that sort of damage? And they had to try to figure that out. Now, it's a really interesting story. It's very long. It's online. The, in fact, the complete investigation, if you Google it, the NASA investigation pops up in great detail, many, many pages of detail. It's, 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 it's wonderful that it's available to the public like that. But what, what you find is that the telemetry data that was coming down live was showing uh, uh, over temps. The temp gauges inside the wing structure was getting, they were getting hot inside the wing. And, and this main landing gear tire right over here behind me uh, lost pressure. So what's causing that? By the time you try to process what's going on here, the vehicle's lost and the crew is gone. So they knew they had a problem here. They knew they had a strike here, but where and how do we prevent it? So uh, at the time, Enterprise was sitting at Udvar-Hazy at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., and they had removed the wings. And I actually went down there to visit. Uh, I was at Udvar-Hazy, and I remember seeing Enterprise with all these leading edges missing. And I'm like, why did they take the leading edges off? I had no idea why they took the leading edges off. But they actually used them to test the theory, and they made a, a gun. They made a cannon, an, a compressed air cannon that would shoot a block of foam at the proper speed. You could figure that out by analyzing the video. You're at launch, you're moving a few hundred miles an hour, and a piece of foam breaks off. You're actually hitting that foam at a few hundred miles an hour. So this, this styrofoam, fragile stuff uh, can cause damage at that speed. That's what they did. They shot the foam, and you can look at the leading. If you come, so that's what those yeah, <laughs> there yeah. are marks on the, on the viewers wing. can come and visit us and <laughs> come over to the left wing leading edge, and you're going to see scuff marks, and you're going to see the remnants of the test, including some stress gauges, and underneath that blue and silver tape, and there's even some engineers have put some labels on it where this is this blue tape. That is the culprit. That is the piece of leading edge that suffered the damage. Now, you don't see they, they tested Enterprise's leading edges, but Enterprise's leading edges, remember, were not part of the actual go-in-space heat system. They were fiberglass instead of reinforced carbon-carbon. So the fiberglass is much stronger structurally than the reinforced carbon-carbon. But they knew from the stress gauges they were getting enough of an impact to finally, let's really prove it, they took a reinforced carbon-carbon leading edge, put it in the same fixture they had Enterprise's leading edge in, used the same cannon, they shot the foam, and it blew a giant hole in the leading edge. That was the culprit. So they, now they knew they had things to fix on the tank. We've got to stop these chunks falling off. We also have to develop some way, if we do get a hole from something else, our crew needs to be able to go outside and fix it. They, they developed all sorts of repair processes, materials, glues, patches, things like that, that, so a crew won't be stranded in space. And all the missions after that, except for one, and I'll, I'll mention that in a second, uh, all the missions after that accident only went to the ISS construction. Let's finish ISS up, and then we're going to retire this vehicle. Whenever they flew up to ISS before they docked, they would come up, and the crew of the ISS would get in the cupola, and they would do a little pirouette maneuver and let the crew analyze the belly of the shuttle. I remember that, yeah. yes. Seeing now, there's the, yes. one mission, and that was the very last Hubble repair mission, which our friend Mike Massimino flew on. 
which is twice as high as the ISS. And not only that, you weren't going to the ISS. You were going to have nobody be able to inspect the belly of your shuttle. But they did. They canceled the mission. Uh, Mike and his crew went through all that training, and then they canceled it. And uh, the scientific community kind of pleaded with them, we got to fix Hubble. We're going to lose Hubble. It was losing gyroscopes. We have to fix things, and we have some better instruments we can put on board, and we can add 20, 25 years to the lifespan of Hubble while we're waiting to get Webb up, right? So um, they did eventually talk NASA's uh, director into one more mission, not to ISS, to that very high altitude where Hubble lives. And they went up and fixed Hubble and came back without incident. So that was the only mission. After the accident, that was the only mission that did not go to ISS. So effectively, this shuttle here, Enterprise, has a double legacy in terms of being a prototype, but also helping play a key role in understanding what went wrong with Columbia as well. Exactly. Uh, plus all those other missions when it after the ALT, the fit checks at the launch pads, the launch sites that we mentioned already, and um, going to Europe, going to the Paris Air Show, and... Uh, and the World's Fair in New Orleans. And so all those little things. It's something that you can't understate public relations <laughs> because, you know, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, as the movie Tom Wolfe's uh, book says and in the movie The Right Stuff. So the public relations piece was good too. And that's why they need to be in museums where everybody can come see them. Now, I've seen Enterprise before, but it wasn't here. It was in... Washington. So how did you manage to get it from Washington onto the ship, this fantastic museum? We, we snuck down one night when they weren't <laughs> open. No, uh, so that... Well, you've got an aircraft going. Did you yeah, just take we, it down to the... We have, we have people. <laughs> um, so when they retired uh, the shuttles from flight, NASA kind of announced, we're going to be dispersing these two museums. And they encouraged museums across the country to throw their hat in the ring and tell us why your museum should have this. And museums across, there's so many worthy museums across this country. There's so many wonderful places. So but, what did um, you do then? Did you offer them money? No, this is not a money deal. We're a nonprofit museum. And, uh, you know, we're, it, it, it was uh, about the story. And we're, we're New York City, for crying out loud. We have a lot of visitors here, a lot of international visitors here. This is a place to come. A lot of people take a vacation. They come to New York. You got Broadway. You got all these wonderful things to do. You got the Intrepid Museum. So we just thought it was a great place to be. Uh, but we thought the competition would be stiff. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking we're not going to get one of those that went into space. You know, I, it was a shoe in for Discovery to go to Uvarhazi. But Enterprise was already there. That's why I thought Enterprise was the wild card. And most museums wanted, you know, Endeavor. Or, you know, they, they wanted Atlantis. They wanted Discovery. Nobody really thought about Enterprise, but I always thought Enterprise being the wild card, it's got to go somewhere. Because Discovery will definitely, and, and will the Smithsonian keep two of them? Which doesn't really serve NASA's purpose. I'm talking about that PR thing again, you know, that public relations thing. They really need to disperse them. And uh, we threw our hat in the ring, and, and I, a couple of years later, I was able to interview Charlie Bolden. General Bolden was, at the time, the director of NASA. So he was the man in charge, and he was almost the last word in making a decision on where these would go. He definitely had a, a, a more of a single vote, I'm sure. And what he did, and he told me this, uh, he went to different museums to visit, and he didn't tell you he was coming. He came here. He didn't tell us he was coming. He bought a ticket. 
he walked around, he looked at the content of our exhibits, he looked at the, the quality of our staff, uh, who, you know, you have tour guides and you have uh, other visitor services staff, you have our security guards, uh, or, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of intrepid staff when you come here ready to answer your questions. And I think that uh, the staff impressed them probably more than anything. And, um, and and they would have had no clue who he was. No, so like nobody, no, undercover boss no. or something. Yeah, it's it's the undercover boss, and uh, a great analogy there. That's what it was. And uh, I guess we just did good. And uh, but we strive to do that for everybody, so not just for Charlie. We didn't know he was Charlie Bolton. He could have been anybody. So um, I think that was the final decision for him to give him that. And a lot of other museums were very angry at us. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I got a lot of phone calls and emails like, you guys shouldn't have got that. We should have got that. But, uh, but it's here. New York City is a great place to showcase this. And figure the next closest space shuttle is Washington, D.C., which is a long train ride or a flight away. Uh, so the northeast of the United States, the northeast, as we, you know, everything from Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, that metropolitan area, this is, this is the place. And why is it important that people see this and remember the shuttle remember you're an aircraft person remember space planes right well you kind of know where your tax dollars are going you know but it's just some people have that in mind but it's just it's more about for us it's about the children who come here and you teach them about the past but we don't do anything here without looking to the future we're going to be doing some new exhibits in this we went through the pandemic so we got to recover from that like everybody else does uh, but there's plans for new exhibits in here. And now that Artemis is flying, you know, we're going back to the moon now, folks. That's going to be part of it, too. So what is the future of human space flight? And we, we tend to look at the past but talk about the future. And that's what we're going to see more in here eventually. Do you think there'll ever be a, 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 a space plane again in the future? I'm hoping that the, that beautiful Pan Am space vehicle from 2001 a space odyssey becomes true someday because i'm buying a ticket i i don't know that you know it was uh it wasn't not as cheap or as reusable as it turns out as they claimed it would be when they first sold it to our congress to buy it so they planned on launching 100 of these a year they what in 25 years they launched 135 is it economical i don't know but it's the payload it can carry is unbelievable. But now they're reusing the engines from the space shuttle, the, the, the R-25. So they're reusing space shuttle main engines on Artemis. Of course, you can't get them back now. So once you shoot them off, they're gone. But uh, they were reusable on shuttle. So where's the economic dollar there? So uh, I think, you know, and then you got SpaceX is chiming in with more reusable stuff. So I think it's going to be a, there's going to be some kind of happy in between. Do you need the winged vehicle? Probably not. Probably not. It sure is a great way to come home, though, and land on and be able to open the door and walk out and not get wet. Maybe someday. Maybe maybe my granddaughter will see a, a winged vehicle coming back from space. Now, there's, you know, our Air Force is still using them. There's a, a, a small, looks like a little tiny space shuttle they use for bringing uh, classified content up to space. So, someday. Eric Bohm from the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York. And if you've not heard it, by the way, our Mike Massimino interview was in our January podcast and you will enjoy it. Worth listening for the squirming Susan after the interview. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And that is Space Boffins. Uh, we are supported by the UK Space Agency. Uh, do please get in touch. Say nice things about us on your uh, podcast platform of choice, if you so desire. It does help. 
does help. It? The algorithms love it. Okay. It's feeding the algorithms. Give them a little bit and they, they love that. Bit, like like red bit. meat to the algorithms, okay. that is. Give yeah. them a bit of love and yeah. red meat. And yeah. thanks for listening.